You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We are back in the studio still with David, just conquered Goliath, and the ladies seem to like it. So I think that's where we are. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that, that that's actually uh, very correct. We're in chapter 18, and we're going to be picking up in verses 6 and 7. And uh, yeah, this is the, the part of the story where David is being celebrated. We had this little interlude with Jonathan right before this, and now David is returning to the city and everyone's celebrating his victory over Goliath. And, and the women come out to, to meet David and they're returning with musical instruments. They're singing and the women sing a very particular song. They, they say that Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And now this is the book of Samuel, so anytime we're in Samuel, we know there's got to be problems, and right off, we have a huge problem that the rabbis tried to, to solve for us, and unfortunately, I believe that many of uh, the church leaders today are trying to solve for us still, because um, I based that on our interview with Amy Bird that we completed this weekend, which hopefully we'll have out before too long, yep. but... Um, the, the rabbis didn't like the idea that the women were singing where David could hear them because, as they said in the Talmud, a woman's voice is as nakedness. And mm. so they tried to say, oh, well, you know, they weren't really singing. They were chanting it. Okay. And, you know, a nice little loophole that we like to find for women's roles within the Bible. Yeah, and, she's not really preaching. She's standing, you know, two feet left of the pulpit. <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, on a side note, uh, the Yama Ensemble uh-huh. does a fantastic rendition of this. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, okay. They, uh, it's, uh, it's, there's more than just the two lines, but they, I don't know if there's a psalm that expounds on this, but they do a, a great uh, version of it. It's very lively. Well, and, and that's the thing. This well done. <laughs> probably was the refrain. This was probably not the entire song. So we mm-hmm. would have had, you know, a uh, verse and then chorus, just like we have with, with songs here. Sure. So we, we don't have any kind of indication um, within this part of the text. And I didn't find any indication in the Psalms when I was looking uh, at what the rest of the text might say or what the rest of the song might say. But, you know, fortunately for us, the Bible doesn't seem to have a problem with women singing. Uh, We have Exodus 15, where Miriam sings after they Mm -hmm. cross the Red Sea. Of course, we have Judges 5, the the famous song of of Deborah. And we also have Song of Songs, the song of the Shulamite, and her her singing over her beloved. And, you know, Deborah and Miriam, their, their songs are some of the oldest in all of the Bible, the biblical text. So the fact that we have women's songs preserved and they are called songs are not mm. called chants. There's a word for this. We don't have to try to make the Bible say something it didn't in order to, um, you know, make it less offensive for our delicate sensibilities. Yeah. That's well. And, 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 and you know, that's a very delicate sensibility. that's being offended by a woman singing. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. And so it's it's really good to to see where the Bible does affirm that women can lead the nation and, and they are leading the nation in the celebration of victory. And it and note it is the women, not the men. And they're, they're specifically playing uh, instruments. They're playing tambourines and probably uh, a lute uh, that would be specific instruments used for celebration. And because of this, there's actually an idea that they might be professional merrymakers. Uh, I think that's how uh, Block referred to them. And this, I, I think we're kind of familiar, a lot of us who've studied the Bible know that a lot of times there were professional whalers at funerals mm-hmm. and that they would uh, you know, make this great outcry of lament. And to see that there's also women who made a living celebrating, I think, would be a very interesting idea. And so we know this is part of the ancient culture, even though the Bible doesn't specifically identify them as such. So to me, it kind of seems like the idea of hiring a band to come play your occasion. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really kind of what it sounds like. I mean, it's probably a little more intense because, I mean, music was viewed a little more spiritually mm-hmm. oftentimes back in the day. So. Uh, definitely. Yeah. And we're going to talk about how actually music is a, a weapon of war. And cool. we're going to be getting into that. So, yeah, the song itself um, only has five words, as it's recorded in the Bible, five words in Hebrew. And like I said, that's probably the chorus and, or a refrain and not, not the verse. But that's the part that makes Saul mad. And that's why we've hung on to it, because we need to know this is what the upsetting factor is, not what else may have been said. But you, you have to ask yourself, what could the women sing about Saul during this particular battle? Uh, I mean, Goliath had been stomping out for 40 days and challenging Israel to this duel, and, and he's never responded, Saul never responds to Goliath's challenge. So he, while he was hiding in his tent, he, he sent a child out to, to confront the, this, this um, giant. And so the women, when they're singing about Saul here, they aren't talking about his victories within this particular battle. They're actually talking about previous um, previous battles, you know, that, and that had to sting because Saul had been a great warrior. He'd had great successes. Now he's an old man. He's got grown children. Mm-hmm. So we know he, he's aged. Um, and Saul's beginning to see that his position isn't just precarious because Samuel has decreed it. His situation is precarious because the people are starting to love David more than they loved him. So verses eight and nine. Uh, it says, and Saul was very angry, and this saying was displeasing to him, the, the song that the women were singing. And he said, they ascribe to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now, Saul's response really shouldn't surprise us, because if we go back to chapter 13, where he gives the unlawful sacrifice um, to uh, appease the crowds, and then in chapter 14, he makes the rash vow again to appease the crowds. And in chapter 15, whenever Samuel denounces him with the, uh, the king of the Amalekites, and he begs Samuel to go back and, and to make him look good in front of the people, mm-hmm. you know, Saul really is shown as having two concerns. One, he wants to hang on to the throne, and the other one, he wants to look good in the eyes of others. And so the fact that this kind of assault on his reputation is kind of what's making him mad. We, we see that this is in perfect keeping with Saul's character. And he is finally pretty clearly um, convinced that it's David who's going to take his throne. I mean, 
David's already got the glory, and he's already become Israel's defender. He's won Jonathan's loyalty, and he has the admiration of the people. What else can David take from him other than the kingdom? And that's what Saul's acknowledging when he says this. And you know, Saul keeps an eye on him from that day forward. It's it's a jealous eye. Uh, he he's watching with the intent to do harm. And what I found interesting in in this particular section of the story is Saul's the one who decided to bring David into his home. He's the one that decided David need to needed to live in the palace with him. And in effect, it's Saul who actually makes David be his neighbor. And this is important because in 1 Samuel 15, 28, God promised to give the kingdom to the neighbor who was better than Saul. Mm -hmm. So Saul actually creates the circumstances that allows Samuel's words to come to fruition. And not only has Saul made David his neighbor, the the people have declared, David's better than you are. So we, we are starting to see how this can unravel and how it can actually be accomplished according to what the prophet said. So verse 10, the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he again, (laughs) again, and he raved within his house. And when David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day, while, while David was playing the lyre day by day. So the evil spirits back and this is causing Saul to rave within his house. I have a problem with this translation. Surprise, surprise. Uh, the word there in Hebrew is nava. Uh, he, he prophesied within his house. Uh, there's no other time that the ESV translators decide to use this word as rave, with one exception. The other exception is when Elijah is with the prophets of Baal on Mark, Mount Carmel. And so there's this idea that the translators are pushing you not to see this as prophecy, that what Saul's saying is somehow corrupt or untrustworthy because it's been inspired by an evil spirit. But the problem with that is to insert our presuppositions upon the text. Uh, it linguistically, textually, there's no reason for it for us not to call it prophecy. And prophecy in ancient cultures could be unintelligible ravings and rantings. A prophet was not the one who actually communicated the word to the people in most cultures. The prophet was the one who, who actually was overcome by this, this uh, delirium of sorts and, and would say these things, and then it was interpreted from there. And nowhere are we told that what Saul is saying is false prophecy. That, that assumption is made because of the evil spirit being mentioned. Now, I do, I'm, I'm curious about mm-hmm. this because uh, is there any aspect of the way they're using prophecy just simply to mean a communication from a spirit? Because, I mean, when we look at, I don't know, and I'm just kind of mm-hmm. working through this as we're, as we're going here. Because when we talk about, you know, the lying spirits put in the mouth of the prophets who talk, who spoke to Ahab. Right. And we're not, they're not ever called false prophets. Mm-hmm. They just have been prophesying from a lying spirit. Mm-hmm. So where are, we, <laughs> where are we at at that point? Well, and I, I think this is where, like I said, our presupposition, because we don't like the idea that a, an 
a spirit that's not of God, the Holy, that something other than the Holy Spirit could actually give insight into the spiritual realm. And they, the Bible clearly shows that they can. Well, and what's really funny about that, especially you know, us coming from a Southern Baptist background, we don't like that idea, but we're constantly telling people to be afraid of it. Right. Exactly. You know, it, it, or the, you know, not us specifically, but, you know, <laughs> a lot of people within the denomination are constantly, oh, you you might catch a bad spirit, but but then they don't actually really exist. You know, it, which one is it? Um, you don't so, get to pick one. You get to pick them all and then apply the right one at the right time in order to to have the proper theology. And this leaves you with schizophrenia. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> Anyhow, so that, that I'm, I'm just... No. Just some stuff to think about. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, we're never, like I said, we're never told that what Saul's saying is false, but what could be more maddening to Saul than the truth? Right. I, I really think about the fact that if this is a spirit from the Lord, like we're told, and let's presume that, that the spirit of the Lord inspires Saul to speak the truth, everything that's going to be coming out of this, it's coming through the spirit, you know, to Saul is, is going to be, you're losing your kingdom. David's going to take it from you. God has rejected you. And now Saul's going to stand up in all of his fleshly power as a, in an attempt to, to try to fight back against it. And of course, we know that he winds up being powerless and he's unable to be successful because it is his fleshly powers that are trying to enact this change. And he's, he never goes to God and says, hey, I messed up. I need to repent. I need to submit to your will. I need to do the right thing. And I think we need to stop playing with the language when we do Bible translations in order to protect people from this idea that maybe a prophet or even, you know, prophecy isn't always pretty in how it's delivered. Sure. So just my two cents. But at the last part of that verse, in in verse 10, we're told that Saul has his spear in his hand. And this is a good time to remember that Saul's a son of a Gabor. Mm-hmm. He is the son of one of the women taken by the tribe of Benjamin, or at least a grandson, that he is a mighty man of valor himself, mm-hmm. and that he's tall, he's head and shoulders above his countrymen. He is a giant, and now he's holding a spear, just like the last time that someone held a spear confronting David was Goliath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Saul is really being presented as just as much of an enemy to David as Goliath was on that battlefield. And we need to bear that in mind. Saul's not the victim here, okay? That, that's the thing. We're going to talk about why he's not the victim here. But, um, you know, this time what David is confronting his enemy with is not a sling. It's a liar. Right. It, it, it's the, the canor. It, it's what... David, the instrument David is familiar with using. And I kind of wonder if this isn't some kind of, um, if we couldn't draw some kind of lesson from this about discerning how to deal with your enemy. When, when do you need to use a sling? When do you need to use praise and worship as a way to, to defend yourself? Um, you know, Goliath took a sling. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it would have been just stupid if David would have stepped out onto the battlefield with a liar. Fair enough. Um, but at the same time, having a sling, again, using the sling against the king of Israel, God's anointed king, God's chosen king, and we can't forget that about Saul, that would have been wrong also. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So 
when we see this, though, we're supposed to see the parallels in the situation. And we're supposed to see that there are times that you don't confront your enemy directly. But the Bible is very clear that in each case, God is the one who provides the, the rescue. God's the one who provides the victory. And, you know, Saul is, he's a great warrior. And so the idea of throwing a spear across a room at a sitting target, mm-hmm. the fact that he would, would miss it, it is something that would seem ludicrous. And we're going to talk some more about that when we go into it. But another reason why I think David didn't kill Saul at this moment, I mean, David knows he's going to be king. And I think, you know, killing the king uh, is not a good precedence that for a future king to set. And so for David to go, um, yeah, we're going to hold off on uh, trying to make this happen with our own ability and our own strength, and we're going to let God handle it. Uh, he's really kind of setting the tone for what he probably hopes would happen in his own reign, that if people disagreed with him or didn't like him, that they wouldn't try to assassinate him while he's on the, on the throne. So verse 11, Saul hurled the spear, and for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. So two times, um, there's a chance that this might be an allusion to turning the other cheek because why did David stay in the room after this? But there's also that element of two witnesses. David was delivered twice. So this had to be God's supernatural intervention. Mm. It was not just something that David was just quick enough to jump away. But we've also got to remember, we've had this doubling aspect in Saul's life from the very beginning of his story. He's been anointed king twice. He fights the Philistines twice. He's rejected as king twice. Hmm. He meets David twice. And we're getting ready to approach another doubling uh, of the story. We're also told in this verse exactly what Saul is thinking. And notice who the thoughts are attributed to. The thoughts are are attributed directly to Saul. They're not given to the demon. Well, the harmful spirit. Yes, the evil spirit. The evil spirit yes. Not a demon. Dem- correct. <laughs> yes, I need to be right on that. Yeah, he's, he, it, this is not a case of the devil made me do it. Right. Saul made the choice, and Saul alone is responsible for his actions. Now, the spirit from the, wor- from the, from the Lord is, you know, he's provoking Saul, and he is weakening Saul, and he, he's really trying to, to enrage Saul, it seems like, but Saul ultimately is the one who decides to do it. And the Spirit just brought to surface what was already in, in Saul's heart. The, 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 spirit, the, the evil spirit was sent because Saul had made room for it prior sure. to the fact of God sending it. Uh, and when we engage in sin and we engage in rebellion, we're basically making room for evil spirits to come and take a precedence. And notice this isn't just a slip. And I, I want to point that out. This isn't just an oops, I didn't know. I didn't mean to offend God. This is Saul had repeatedly sinned and been rebellious towards God and disrespectful towards God's chosen people over and over again. Right. And so it wasn't until he had already demonstrated who he was an undeniable means that the Bible says that God sends this evil spirit. Saul asked for it through his actions. But I wanted to make a, a quick little side note, and, and this is my personal 
observation, but I also think this is a good point to to clarify this because I've been talking a lot to people about spiritual warfare late, lately. Um, there's a reason why our enemy is called Satan, that he's the accuser, because all he really gets to do is say, I think you're guilty of this. Fill in the blank. It doesn't matter what it is. I mm -hmm. accuse you of being guilty with this. And most of the time, that accusation reveals what's already in our own heart. And to claim that we're never going to be bigger than our temptations, that our temptations define us, mm. then we get to decide, are we going to act in agreement with our accuser or are we going to deny our accuser? And so if we act in agreement, then we go, oh yeah, by the way, that's, that is what I'm tempted with. This is what defines my, my being. And now that I have this, this definition, then I'm just going to act in accordance with it. But if we, we say no, we're going to say that God's reign in our life is more powerful than anything our accuser might say. Now we're acting in faith. Well, and I mean, that kind of goes back to, uh, you know, we've, we have an interview. It's not out yet, but we recorded with Matthew Whiteford. And one of the things he was talking about was, you know, we talk, you, you mentioned shame. Mm -hmm. And there is that shame that is points you to repentance mm -hmm. which is the good shame and then there's the the shame that tries to control and that's when uh you talk about you know satan wanting to to control yeah you know it's it's using the shame to to point you to a to a false lord exactly and it's saying that satan's rule satan's accusations are more powerful than god's ability to bestow a new identity which is mm -hmm. god's that's God's promise for us that we would be reborn and we're re we are reborn into his kingdom. And so his words and his definitions about who we are should be the ones that define us, not anything that we carry around in our hearts from, because, you know, we're, we're all in the process of becoming and, and growing closer to God, growing to maturity and hopefully throwing off some of these old things that did define us. Right. But now we get to say that accusation is not true because I am a child of the king, and we can step away from that identity. And that's exactly what Saul, Saul doesn't do, and his, his actions prove his guilt. Mm -hmm. And so we get to decide, do our actions prove our guilt? And so when I, when I was reading through this, I, I realized a lot of people who, who want to talk about spiritual warfare really like to bring up, oh, the devil made me do it. No, the devil showed you where your weakness was, and instead of taking that weakness before the Father, you decided to say that he was right. Sure. Well, and 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 you were talking about uh, actions betraying guilt, and it's like even even if you are guilty of something, don't choose to continue in it. Right. Take that to God. And that's the reason why our you know I almost hate to say that we need to be relational with God because that's taken on this holding connotation in in our society today. But that's the reason why it does have to be relational and we have to be responsive and actually moving towards God in a conscious manner. Mm -hmm. And I think so often we just think, well, God's just with me. And so I'm okay. And God's saying, no, I want to interact with you and I want you to be participating with me in each and every moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that awareness. So anyway, that was my little rabbit trail for that, that passage. Uh, verse 12 it says, so Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and had departed from Saul. So throwing a spear, um, I know this seems like I'm backtracking, but throwing a spear is an act of sovereignty and power. And in trying to kill David, 
Saul is, is trying to demonstrate that he has control over David's life. Mm. And as king, he, he can exercise that right. I mean, a king had the ability to, to hurt and kill his, his subjects. That was part of this culture, this very ancient, very brutal culture, which we need to keep in mind that we're dealing with. The idea of a king killing a subject was not really all that offensive. And so Saul's trying to say that he has this ability, he has this right, and instead what he sees in this act is God's protection and God saying that, no, Saul, even though he is the king who physically sits on this throne, God is still the king in Israel. Sure. And he's the one who has the ultimate ability to determine who lives and dies. It's not up to Saul. Saul has nothing left. So you can see why this becomes so alarming for Saul. This isn't just a, oh, David got lucky or God was nice to him today. Mm-hmm. This really is a declaration of not only what David has, but everything that Saul has lost. And Saul has every reason to be afraid. And I, I don't think we get that when we, when we read it because we go, oh, well, you know, he just missed. We like to reason it away. Saul knew the spiritual ramifications. So I do wonder about that, like how much he knew, because it does say he was afraid because the spirit of God was with David and uh, it had left him. I know Saul at this point probably knows the spirit of God has left him, mm-hmm. but I'm curious if the fear was just induced or if Saul was conscious that that was the source? Well, you know, if he's prophesying in his house, then he, he has some, some insight into what's going on in the, in the spiritual world. And I think that's another reason we need to quit messing with the text. Right. Because now we see that he, he's got a direct line. And we're going to find in Saul's story that people who have access to the spiritual world, even illicit access and access that God has forbidden, they still get a hold of information that can be very accurate. Yeah. And we're going to see that, w- especially uh, with the, the Witch of Endor. So I, I think it's, it, it's interesting to me that the Bible never says that these these false prophets or that the opposing spirits don't have some truth to impart. It just shows us that the truth is often twisted and that we can't rely on it. And so it never says there's no power there. It just says you need to be careful and you need to be looking for the one who has the ultimate power and will tell you the truth Mm -hmm. and that you can rely on. So, but we'll get more into that. I, I, I can't wait to get to the Witch of Indoor uh, story because I know a lot of people are really curious about that. Um, sure. Yeah. I read it, I don't know how many times as a kid, trying to make sense of it all. And where are the Ewoks? I know. That would have made an interesting Bible story. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, <laughs> Every time I hear that, that's immediately what I think of. Well, you know, Steven Spielberg was, uh, is Jewish. Well, so. it wasn't Spielberg. That was Lucas. Is that Lucas? George Lucas, yeah. Is he Jewish? I don't know. Uh, well, okay. But, you know, there's some background that goes that by there would be some familiarity with sure. these terms. So, yeah, you would have known your, known your Bible. So, uh, or Tanakh. Uh, verse 13 through 16, I'm not going to read it, but um, Saul puts David out of the house at this point. He realizes if he can't kill David, there's a pretty good chance that David could kill him. And he's just not went to live under that shadow anymore. And he, he makes David a commander of, 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 of a thousand. Uh, 
So we don't know if that's a literal thousand or if it's just a measurement of a unit uh, of the troops, but a lot of men basically. But this, this places David in the public eye. And so now more people are getting to witness David's acts of bravery and courage, and they're becoming even more enamored with him. And the Bible is very clear to say that David's success in this position is because the Lord is with him. And all of David's successes are pretty much going to be attributed to God alone. It's not that David does that, but that God does it through David. And when David acts on his own, the, the writer of Saul is very quick to show how David usually makes a bloody mess out of everything, mm. uh, literally. So Saul's fear increases with David's success. And Israel and Judah, I mean, they, the Bible writer is very clear that their love and respect for this guy is just continuing to grow leaps and bounds. So this is the setup for probably one of the stranger stories in the Bible. Uh, It's so strange that most of the time people don't really even talk about it or it's kind of uh, treated as a, you know, nothing to see here. Just, just move along. And this is, well, so I don't know. I, I, I do think there's a bad move here. You know, it's like, People really like this guy, so I'm going to put him in charge of people. Mm-hmm. You know, that just seems like a bad move. Um, you know, like, if you wanted to discredit someone, and part of me wonders if Saul was secretly trying to set David up for some, something like Uriah later does to David. Or David does to Uriah? Yeah, the, yeah, David does to Uriah. That's exactly what's going on here. And, but the problem is, he just gets so darn popular with his own <laughs> troops, you know, that Things can't go well. Well, and we're going to see in future stories where his troops just tell David, you're not even going out on the battlefield anymore because we can't let you die. Sure. And so that's very much a possibility. I don't know if it's happening at this point yet, but as we move into this next story, we're going to find that Saul is his hope. I mean, he specifically states, I shouldn't have to kill David. We'll let the Philistines do it. Right. And so, yes, David... David took some of Saul into his reign. Fair enough. I read ahead, but it's been a couple of weeks. I've been <laughs> yeah, been distracted. Yeah. Well, you've got big things going on in your life. So the, the story we're going into, it runs from verses 17 through 27. And this is the story of Saul's two daughters, uh, Marab and Michael, and, or Michal. Uh, we're going to talk about them. Uh, we're going to make some really interesting side journeys. I don't know how much we're going to get through in this episode because it, it's... It's interesting. Um, there's not a lot of detail in the story. Mm. And there's a lot of unanswered questions in the story. So we, we have to try to figure out a way, how can we answer these questions and still respect what's on the page? And uh, I should make a shout out to Vivian. She's in our paddle store. She was great. When she found out this is where, where we were going to be headed this way, <laughs> she sent me like articles and resources and uh, really saved me a lot of time, and most of what you're going to get today is because she took time to actually help me with this, and I, I, I love it. So um, keep the article coming. Um, it, it, Vivian's great. So, and I should also mention we just can't do a lot of the stuff we want to do without the help from the people in the paddle store, and so absolutely, they're they are a big reason. They are a big reason why we we keep going. So. Um, the story of Michael and Marab, one of the reasons why 
it, it's kind of overlooked is because there is this idea that women were used for trophies of war, that if you were a successful warrior, then you got the beautiful woman. I mean, we're still familiar with this concept. I mean, all of our fairy tales pretty much revolve around it. We, we still kind of, uh, there are parts of the country where we still kind of do this, except it's not trophies of war, it's trophies of college. <laughs> um, you know, right? We, you know, everyone wants their daughter to marry a doctor or a lawyer or somebody mm-hmm. who's going to be super successful. And, you know, we've, we've seen that a lot in especially small town. <laughs> you right. Know, this is, this is your ticket out of here, you know. Escape while you can. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's not at all a foreign concept. We've just kind of modified it a little bit. A little I bit mean, more uh, palatable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, and it's not a foreign concept even in the Bible. Uh, the book of Judges, Caleb says, hey, whoever defeats the city can have my daughter. Yeah. And I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying it happens. Yeah, right. I want to clarify. Well, uh, but there's a huge contrast in the way Caleb does it, because Caleb does it with kind of this mindset that if this guy's a great warrior and he's willing to risk on behalf of God, then he's going to make a great husband for his daughter. Sure. Saul here, he doesn't care. He he has a completely different motivation. And so we'll, we'll get into that. So we have some, some things with the story that that are problematic. And this is one, one of the reasons why I think a lot of Christians don't like to read and really pay attention to what's going on in the story is we get our first insights into how David is comfortable using women. Mm-hmm. He has absolutely no problem with taking advantage of a woman in order to achieve his goals. And, you know, yeah, Saul is the instigator of this situation, but not really, because if you back up to the previous chapter where David's talking about killing Goliath, he wants to know, is the king really going to give the daughter to the guy who kills the giant? Right. And so David has been obsessed with this question, but then we have the, this really strange story that doesn't even seem to fit with that paradigm. So we are um, in verse... Well, well and this also kind of keeps... It, this is a kind of in keeping with, you get your daughter or you get a wife after you've done a certain task like we see with uh jacob mm-hmm. rachel and, and leah yeah Ra- rachel and leah and we keep seeing this moving goalpost yes and uh i think that we kind of see some kind of parallel there yeah, absolutely we do and even marab herself uh achieving that marriage is a moving goalpost because uh well let's just jump in so verse 17 when saul offers david his oldest daughter it's on the condition that David will fight the Lord's battles. And once again, like we are so often given with Saul, we are told Saul's thoughts. Remember, we, we are always told what Saul is thinking. We're rarely told what David is thinking mm-hmm. until we go to the Psalms. Sure. And so it's Saul's thoughts. Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistine be against him. So yes, absolutely. Saul's purpose in putting David as a commander was to get him killed. That didn't work. And now he's going to induce David to fight even more ferociously in battle because he's going to be fighting on behalf of God. Mm-hmm. And here's your prize for fighting on behalf of God, which that should be a tip off. If fighting on behalf of God gives you an earthly prize, who are you and what are you really fighting for? So fair enough. Just this one verse where we got problems because again, Saul had already promised his daughter to whoever had killed Goliath. So what's up with the additional requirements? This, right. You should be asking that. Saul has recognized he can't kill David, but he believes the Philistines might be able to do it. And, and what we 
forget what he's saying there, what Saul's really saying there. And this, this is the most troubling aspect of this is he's saying that the gods of the Philistines might actually be more powerful than the God David serves. So. Yeah, I know that's really kind of a wild thing. When you really get into breaking that down, it's like, well, I can't do it because, but maybe the, yeah, maybe always not as great as I thought is kind of where Saul's going here. It's, that's exactly what's going on. And I think we, we tend to overlook that because we forget that these wars, and I, I know you and I have repeated a lot, they are wars between the gods. Mm-hmm. People are just the weaponry and the means by which they're accomplished, but it really is the gods who are battling. So then we have this other troubling phrase, what, what exactly are the Lord's battles and how in the world are, is David supposed to complete them? Talk about a moving goalpost. I mean, that's, a, that's something that's never going to be finished until Jesus comes again. So technically, David could never fulfill the requirements of this marriage, even right out of the gates. So Saul is setting him up for failure on so many levels. Well, and he says, be valiant for me mm-hmm. and fight the Lord's battles. I mean, I think that's, you know, not to dip our toes too much into politics, but it's that <laughs> idea of you support me. You're winning one for the Lord mm-hmm. that you kind of hear with, with a lot of right-wing conservative political affiliations mm-hmm. and not to bash too much on them, but you also hear it on the left too. Mm-hmm. But it is, you know, if, if you support me, then you're a vote for me is a vote, you know, basically a vote <laughs> for me is a vote for Jesus kind of mentality. Yeah. And I, it's that kind of political stuff. It, it's the same thing that we see in, in modern politics. Well, and then that also goes back to the conversation we just had with Matthew Whiteford. And, you know, if when a leader decides that their voice is the same as the voice of God, then we have a problem. We have an abusive situation. And of course, Saul's whole attitude towards David is abusive. Mm-hmm. We can we can definitely see that. And David, you know, later on, he's going to become abusive. And uh, that should be problematic. But in verse 18, David begs off and he says, you know, his family isn't good enough to marry into the royal family. And we're told these are David's words, but we don't really know why all of a sudden he feels like he's not good enough. I mean, before he seemed like he was all for killing the giant and getting the girl. I I mean, I think he's just playing politics. I mean, I think (laughs) he can explain it away. Just, oh, who am I? You know, it's like, uh, who is the, the guy who took the half moon things off the camels and judges? Oh, oh yeah, uh, that was Gideon. Gideon, yeah, yeah. I was, I was trying to think because he changed his name after that, and I was trying to think mm-hmm. who it was. Yeah, Gideon. Yeah, I, I don't ask me to remember the other name. I've slept since then. Um, but, yeah, but no, that that's that is a problem because is this political posturing by David? Is it true humility? I I have a hard time with David being humble beyond more than five minutes at a time at any season of his life. Uh, you know, is he trying to avoid the death trap that, that Saul is trying to set? Um, <laughs> you know, or is he trying to get Dave, Saul to, to elevate his family, you know, confer the proper rank on my family, give us the right riches, then I'll be good enough to marry your daughter. Right. And, and that's a possibility. David's not stupid. He, he's never presented as stupid. Uh, he does some foolish things, but he, it's always because he outsmarts himself. Yeah, it's always hubris. It's mm-hmm. not just idiocy. Yeah. Two very different things. 
Precisely. And usually people with some good hubris have some, you know, foundation for why they, they feel validated in that opinion. But, you know, we, once again, we're not told what David's thinking. Uh, we just no, suddenly know that he's very reluctant to marry Marab. Uh, it could be that, you know, like Leah, she had soft eyes or there could have been some other physical de- defect. We, we don't know. Um, but like I said, he just seemed, it, it's a shift. It's a major shift when last chapter he just seemed overly uh, curious. And Saul's very problematic because it's obvious he has absolutely no issue with making a widow of his daughter, that he wants to marry her off and make her a widow. This is the worst situation any woman can be in in that, in that time frame. Now, as the daughter of the king, probably, she'll, be, she'll be, probably be taken care of. Yes, but at the same time, it's like maybe not because once she joined with David's family, she was no longer part of Saul's family. Uh, she would have been passed off in Leverite marriage from brother to brother, which we know that happened uh, at this time. And he, David had several uh, several brothers. Right. So you know, Saul's attitude towards his own daughters is very reminiscent of the elders and fathers at Shiloh. And, you know, it, the women can be used to to placate the people and to get what we want out of the situation politically. And since Saul is a direct descendant of one of these women who was either his mother or his grandmother, now what Saul's doing is far more heinous because he's not being ignorant about it. He, right. He's doing this with full knowledge of what he's doing. But this does set up the, the idea that David learned how to deal with Uriah from Saul. And the fact that David did not completely cut himself off from Saul's influence actually becomes problematic in David's own reign. Right. So uh, I think a lot of people forget that um, that Saul did have an influence on David and that David lived in his house, just like Samuel lived in the house of Eli. And we see problems with Samuel's um, time as a prophet. And we talked about that in previous episodes. So again, uh, the writer of Samuel using these themes to kind of build and help us see that this is a reoccurring problem with the human condition. It's not just these people were horrible or these people were great. This is part of humanity. And without mm-hmm. God's direct intervention, we're always going to fall into the same traps. Because we're all a little bit terrible. It, we are. At least a little bit. At least, yeah. So, wow. We should we, move on. Yeah, okay. So verse 19. <laughs> um, but at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was, he, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, I love that word, for a wife. So this is where the debate comes in, and this is a huge debate, and it's been debated from every angle. There's so many questions. Did Saul call off the marriage because he didn't feel like David was going to fulfill his end of the bargain? Did David never intend to marry Merab? Did Merab secretly arrange some kind of marriage of her own to the man of her choice before she could be traded off? Well, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it actually, I mean, I've, I do remember I did have a Bible class um, that taught that Saul just completely, like, the, just completely, like, just, I don't know, I was trying to think of a good word, a good way to phrase <laughs> just, like, completely double-crossed David, and <laughs> David was ready to get married to her, and that he just let her marry someone else. 
but there's that's not explicit in the text. Yeah, we, we know that there's a, a time because it says when the day came. So there's evidently some agreement that was reached, but we don't know what the agreement was. We aren't given that. Uh, more importantly, we're never told how Marab feels about this arrangement. Not once does she say a single word in the entire Bible. She is mentioned again, and we'll talk about that later. Um, she is a voiceless pawn in all of this, and, and that's very important to remember when we move forward. Yeah, because there is the possibility, too, that David, you know, because he does decline the marriage here, right? So there is the possibility, too, like you mentioned, he was not into Marab. And that, that Saul's like, well, she's got to marry somebody. <laughs> right. And so when you, that, and so maybe she, maybe she was told she was going to marry David. And then the time comes and it's like, well, you know, while we're all here, there's going to be a wedding, but it's not <laughs> going to be mine. Um, you know, it's kind of one of the, I mean, there's, there is, there's a hundred questions. And, and there's a hundred stories from the rabbis to explain oh, it. I, I'm sure. And I'm sure <laughs> most of them are interesting. And I'm sure a good number of them are just like splitting hairs. Yeah. Uh, but, I, you know, to me, it, I almost, I would almost prefer that reading that David was like, well, I don't really want to marry her. And then they arranged, and then and that Marab was able to arrange who she wanted to marry because mm-hmm. Saul was like, well, I've already told her she can get married. So we find somebody. <laughs> well, and, and we forget that under the Torah, she did have the right to refuse. Sure. She could have exercised that right and said, Mm-mm, "No, he, you know, he's going to be too violent. He's going to be." Yeah, and and who knows? I mean, you know, David's hanging around the palace. Maybe Marab was like, "David, I don't want to marry you." And then David was You're like, "Like a little brother." Oh, well, yeah, no, it could, could have been. It could have been like you know, they friend may have, zone. May have had the conversation in private, and then David could could have been in public, like, "Who am I to marry into the king's family?" Mm-hmm. Because she doesn't want to marry me, so we'll let her marry someone else. I don't know. Well, and that's the thing. We're just left with speculation. And at least if we just go through this reading of the text. So, um, but if we stop to let ourselves speculate again, it reinforces the humanity of the people who we're reading about precisely. And you know, because you have to answer it in human terms, cause that's all we have. And yeah. <laughs> you, you have to ask too, why did the writer of Samuel not only include the story, but he gave her a name. And so the fact that she has a name is important mm-hmm. because so often the writer, and we see this in Samuel in other cases, where women show up, but they're not named, even if they have a significant role to play. But when they get that name, now it's time to pay attention. Mm-hmm. So um, we're going to look through some of those theories, but we're going to get through Michael's story because all of that plays into the theories. So uh, verses 20 through 27, we're, we're told. Right off the bat, very important, Michael loves David. Now, this is the only time in Scripture when we are told that a woman loves a man. And I thought this was really interesting that this is it. Hmm. And um, very seldom, in fact, are we told that anyone loves anyone of the opposite sex. Like in in the narrative. Mm -hmm. And I mean, surely, I mean, because we're also talking about, you know, Song of Solomon. There's definitely, I mean, it may not specifically say the woman loves the man, but there's definitely clear indication. (laughs) She wants him at least. There's something going on there (laughs) and they're for it. Yeah. As far as the narrative go, this is, this is it. And, um, I think the only other mention of, of a, of a romantic love is, uh, Jacob loves Rachel. And so that's going to be important. But, but Saul's pleased. And once again, we're Saul's thoughts. Uh, Michael can become a snare for David. 
so that the Philistines can destroy him. You know, Saul's not stupid. He, he spent a considerable amount of time with David. David's lived in his home. And he knows that the one thing this young man cannot resist is a woman. And we're going to see that that is so well known that by the time David dies, when they're trying to determine whether or not he's you know, dead yet, is they put a virgin in bed with him. And when David shows no interest, yep, he's dying. So David has a weakness for women, and Saul is definitely trying to exploit it. And he, he's not just trying to exploit David's desire for women, he's trying to exploit his own daughter's love for David. Yeah, and I do think it's interesting that it says, now Saul's daughter, Mike, uh, Michael, Michal, 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 I like Michal, that seems easier, <laughs> loved David, and they, t- and they told Saul. So this kind of implies that they, that David and, I, I don't know who they is, but I'm assuming mm-hmm. it's that David and Michal told Saul. It's actually probably the servants, okay. um, but I would, I would need to look that up, but I would figure, I think it's the servants and that they're reporting back. Cause there's a lot of intrigue in this passage that I'm kind of over, you know, overlooking by not reading through and, and the servants become a very big plot in this. And you know, the servants are doing all the communicating between the main characters in this passage. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. feasible. Yeah. But. And you know, it's not, Often that, um, even today, you don't see a lot of daughters going to daddy and saying, daddy, I love him. Uh, we see that in those old musicals, but uh, <laughs> oh, man. It, it tends to be a little bit more downplayed in, in real life, I think. And so, you know, Saul tells David, you will be my son-in-law. I mean, he, he just, notice where the emphasis is. It's not, you will be my daughter's husband you will be my son-in-law. Mm-hmm. And so Saul commands his servants that, you know, basically they talk up this deal with David and they want them to want, uh, he wants the servants to focus on Saul's delight in David. You know, it's probably an attempt to say, Hey, you know, back when he tried to kill you, when he threw the spear at you, he, it's okay. It's all good. Now we're fine. Saul loves you. And he could also be saying, you know, don't, don't think that Saul gave your other wife away that, uh, you know, yeah, she married somebody else, but it's really not that big of a deal. This one's better. And Saul's giving you the better of the two. You know, you can kind of imagine what these conversations had to sound like, um, you know, making peace between two people where one has literally tried to kill the other is not the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. So, and David once again, appeals to poverty and his lack of status. And, um, Again, I think that Saul, I mean, David's way of saying, hey, Saul, you need to move me up the food chain a little bit. I, I, I need this, this prestige if I'm going to become a part of your household. But remember, David's view isn't on becoming part of Saul's household. David's view is becoming the king of Israel. So the, the servants report back to Saul what David is saying. And Saul tells David what he wants for a bride price. And <sighs> seriously, it's a hundred skins of the Philistines. At this point, I think it'd be a no. I, I, I was wrong. I, I like her as a friend. You know, I, I love my wife, but I don't know if I could go through with this. Well, you know, David's a man of war. David is a man who who has absolutely no fear of of going out to battle. This was normal for him. Uh, we've been raised in a much softer environment. Fair enough. So, 
Wait, and you- I have so many questions <laughs> about this that I don't actually want the answer to. <laughs> One thing I know is, you know, the Philistines aren't just going to be like, oh, yeah, take mine. <laughs> you know, David's got a task ahead of him. Well, and it's a task that's been designed specifically to destroy David. I mean, you aren't, yeah, the the Philistines are not just going to hand it over. Well, I mean, it's one thing to just be like, hey, go kill a hundred Philistines. But now you have to get a very specific, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, what's war trophy? Yeah. You know, (laughs) Uh, yeah, this is. Try not to get killed by the next one while you're, while the other Philistines, what is he doing? Like. What's even going on? This is why, well, when you think about the way the Israelites were looked at in in other cultures, this might be one of the the episodes that makes them so suspect to other cultures. Um, Not only do they kill us, they disfigure us. Um, It's, yeah, but the... It's just weird. Go ahead. It it is. Well, and circumcision was one of the few Canaanite rituals that the Philistines did not adopt. Right. Remember when they came into this part of the country, they actually were, were adopting many of the gods and the goddesses that were mm-hmm. being worshipped. They adopted a lot of the ceremonies. But circumcision was one that they specifically did not decide to, to make part of their culture. And we, we see this back in the book of Judges when, with Samson and his bride. And this meant that this, this bride price could only be collected from the Philistines. So David couldn't go out and kill, you know, a hundred other one of the the Canaanite groups or people's living there, it had to be the Philistines. And I thought that was interesting because I totally didn't think about that, you know, reading this years before, that this was something only the Philistines could offer him. (laughs) So, Oh, that is, yeah. Hadn't thought of it. Yeah, that makes sense. And it it reminds us that the the Philistines are total outsiders. Um, And it's a total, they're total outsiders who have attempted to claim the land of Israel. Now, remember, a lot of the other people who lived in the land of Israel were also descendants of Abraham, like the Edomites were descendants of Abraham through Esau. Mm -hmm. So this is not David's family, basically, is what we are, um, what we're saying. So basically, while the Israelites willingly complied to this um, requirement of God, now the Philistines are going to be required. Um, to comply with God's demands. So when David hears this, he is pleased uh, to be the king's son-in-law. We're not told why. We don't know why he has a change of heart. We just know that he is. And he is so pleased that before the time has expired, so evidently there was a time frame on mm-hmm. this, yeah. uh, David, you know, he gets right to work. And it, it's perhaps maybe to contrast the fact that the time elapsed with Merab. but. Um, it's also to show that David's enthusiasm for the task at hand, which is to kill the Philistines. And this is what we want a king. The king needs to get rid of the Philistines. This is the whole reason the nation wanted a king to begin with. Mm -hmm. So David and his men, and notice that it's his men. David did not do this alone. Um, Unlike, you know, we're often told, or it's kind of presented in Sunday school, Right. You know, a lot of times with the Abraham story where, oh, he struck out alone. No, he had 300 mighty men with him. I could do a lot of things if I had 300 mighty men with me. Um, Well, you know, okay, well, yeah, it's kind of like watching those home improvement shows. And they're (laughs) like, well, this is just a really simple task. I'm like, yeah, if you have a large budget and a crew, you know, (laughs) it's that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, there was actually a very popular home improvement show that... um, 
we know the people who were the beneficiaries of. And I got to talk, uh, or actually hear an interview, I didn't get to talk to him. I got heard an interview with the contractor who actually did the job, who was local. Right. And then basically when it got time to show the finished project, they would run all the, the workmen off the site, bring mm-hmm. in what he called the talent. And the talent would say, oh, we did this and this and this and this. Right. <laughs> and yeah. so, yeah, uh, probably David was a little bit more involved than that. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's like, like this house is, you know, the, this house is great. We just, all we have to do is lift it and redo the whole foundation. You know, let's do it over the course of lunch, you know. Exactly. Well, you know, 200 of these mighty men probably could lift a whole house. And Fair enough. Yeah. Get the other 100 to put the foundation in. But anyway, we're yeah. getting way off track. So, uh, yeah. So basically, David and his men, they go and they kill 200 Philistines. And they collect the foreskins, which are then presented to Saul. And it's at this point that Saul gives the second daughter, but notice that doubling again. So we went from the requirement being 100, David gives 200, Mm -hmm. and now we have the second daughter who becomes the wife. And so I'm actually thinking we're going to get into some fun stuff. So we've got a few more minutes I think I'm going to take advantage of, and then we'll jump in big time with Michael and Marab, but give everybody a taste. Um, by the time we get through Michael's marriage to Davy, David, Davy, uh, I don't know where that came from. That's what Marab called him. That's why they <laughs> didn't get married. Anyway. So we, we've almost forgotten who Marab is. And, uh, you know, we get the, we've got to go through all this political maneuverings of, you know, killing 200 Philistines. And, you know, that's just so in your face. And, and so graphic and so disturbing that you do have to stop and ask those questions that Marab gets lost again. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's only mentioned in, in the Bible one more time, and that's in 2 Samuel 21, 8. So you know, we're still in 1 Samuel, so sure. that's, that's a pretty good span. Way out. Yeah. And Michael's going to be moved, um, dealt with in, in a few more episodes that are really pivotal episodes within David's development and his life. But we're still left with the question, why are we told about Marab to begin with? And we, like I said, we've gotten, we know there's some kind of significance. And so from, from this passage alone, we could surmise that it is to, to demonstrate David's initial resistance to Saul's plot against him, that maybe he was smart enough to, to avoid, you know, this chance of being killed by the Philistines. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this, maybe a desire in David to have a loving wife. But the, the problem with all of that is we're never told that David loves Michael. And with his interactions that were later shown between the two of them, he actually appears to be rather cold to her. And we have, have a tendency to act like, oh, it's no big deal that he spoke to her this way because she had a bad attitude. And we, we forget that, yeah, she had a bad attitude, but that's not how a husband talks to a wife, particularly not a husband whose idea of what that relationship looks like has been inspired by God. Mm. And David, being a man after God's own heart, should not speak to his wife like this way. Right. So, you know, this, this surface level reading could cause us to, be, to suspect that basically what we're being shown is that David has a weakness for women and he does grasp for power which is in keeping with the way that the first Samuel writer does present David. Right. And I, I think there's an element of that. I mean, we, we see David as a political mover and shaker. Um, 
and and the writer Samuel wants us to be aware of his flaws, but I think this is only part of the story. Mm-hmm. And so in order to get the, the bigger story, we're actually going to have to make two major uh, detours. And the first one is going to be to Rachel, Jacob, and Leah. Okay. Uh, because that is the first time that we have two sister wives and that doubling aspect. And we're going to see how that story connects. The, the second story is uh, the story of Dina and Shechem. And okay. this, we've talked about that on a previous episode. So I want to throw those out there. So, you know, if you've got time this week between, um, between this episode, the next episode that's going to come out, take some time to maybe go back and listen to those episodes about those women mm-hmm. and why they're significant, because that's going to inform how we read the, uh, what's going on behind the scenes with David and Rob and Michael. And so I think I'm going to leave it there because I don't want to get in a nice juicy bit and have to shut up. Okay. So. Well, cool. Well, that's a good place to end. I mean, we're, we're at it. Look right there. One hour. So uh, we're good. <laughs> just <flipped> over. <laughs> well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm excited to see what we get into next week. Um, we've had a good recording schedule this weekend. And even though it's been a bit crazy with back to school, but we are, uh, we're excited to do this, and thank you. If you liked what you heard, want to hear more of it, ravencreeksc.com. You can get to our archives. Um, you can find most of it still on Apple Podcast um, or wherever you get your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to be part of the conversation, Raven Creek SC on all the social media. That's where you can find us and uh, hit us up, be part of the conversation, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.